0: Well, let's return to John's Gospel, chapter 6. John's Gospel, chapter 6. John's Gospel, chapter 6. We have a record of Jesus feeding the 5,000, followed by the most enigmatic miracle recorded in the Gospels, Jesus walking on the water. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. John's Gospel gives us several clues not found in the synoptics that help us appreciate just how revolutionary this miracle truly is. The first was located right there in verse 4 when John tells us the Passover was at hand. This reference to the most famous feast in the Jewish calendar... Shapes her thinking about the feast in the wilderness that Jesus is about to prepare for his followers. The second clue was found in verse 14. And here we learn of the people's response to the miracle. They exclaimed, This is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. And the third clue was found in verse 15, where we learn of Jesus' response to the people. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And our fourth clue is found in verses 22 through 71. This large section of material is found exclusively in John's Gospel. Now we have already worked the first three clues in previous sermons. Today, let's launch into an exploration of this fourth clue, chapters twenty, chapter verse twenty-two through seventy-one. What John is going to do is explain to us what happened after Jesus fed the five thousand. Jesus delivers a lengthy discourse concerning the miracle. In fact, if you're looking at an ESV, you'll notice the heading above verse 22 reads, I am the bread of life. So after multiplying the bread, Jesus points to himself as the true bread of life. Now observe in verse 22 when Jesus gave this discourse on the next day. The discourse was given the day after Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish. So this miracle must have been still very fresh in the people's minds as Jesus delivers this discourse. So let's begin reading with verse 22 and work down through verse 34. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread, and after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Verses 22 through 24 give us the setting for Jesus' bread of life discourse. Apparently, Jesus and his disciples had originally journeyed by boat to the place where Jesus had multiplied the loaves and the fish. The site was most likely along the eastern shore, the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. The crowds had journeyed by foot, coming clockwise out of the north through Bethsaida, Walking their way out into that wilderness place. When the disciples had left by boat that evening, Jesus was not with them. But the next day, Jesus too was gone. And we know, of course, that Jesus walked on water, and that's why he had disappeared from the place. But the crowds didn't know that. In the meantime, some boats had come across from Tiberias over on the western shore of Galilee. Perhaps they were blown there by the previous night's storm. We don't know. But many from the crowds then boarded those boats and sailed to the northwestern shore of Galilee, coming to a place called Capernaum, where they went looking for Jesus. And the ensuing discourse then occurred in the synagogue in Capernaum. Verse 59, which we did not read, actually makes that clear. Look down at that word, look, look down at the text. John writes, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Today, one of the most frequently visited tourist sites in all of Galilee is the synagogue in Capernaum. You can go there today and see these wide, beautiful stones that are part of a later Byzantine synagogue. But if you look down at the bottom, you can see the black basalt stones, which still remain from the time that Jesus spoke in that synagogue. Now this discourse was technically not a formal sermon, but rather a dialogue that turns into a kind of monologue, as Jesus gives some extended answers to the Jewish questions. Now, This dialogue begins with a question. a question put to Jesus concerning how he came to be on the other side of the lake. Well, that's a good question. How'd you get here? And Jesus' answer just quickly sends the dialogue off in a whole new direction. Look at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? I'd be asking the very same question. The boat was gone. You didn't leave in the boat. How'd you get over here? Making his way by foot through the night around the northern shore of Galilee would have been a very tedious process and hardly likely. So, how exactly had Jesus gotten across the water? Now, presumably, his disciples could have related the miracle that they witnessed on the previous night. Peter himself, as we learn in Matthew's gospel, tried to walk in the water and failed. Peter could have been a very powerful witness of the miracle, of course. But Jesus apparently refuses to discuss his travel arrangements. Rather, curiously, he deliberately shifts the crowd's focus back to the previous day's miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. That's where he wants to give his attention. That is the miracle that he really, truly wants to emphasize, not the walking on the water, So we ought to be asking, well, why that miracle? And again, verses 22 through 71 really develop that. Now we know as we read the passage, the crowd had yet to embrace the miracle worker behind the multiplied bread. They want their bellies full, but they are not yet willing to embrace Christ. In the words of D.A. Carson, quote, mere miracles can be corrosive of genuine faith. And Jesus understood this. They're coming to me for bread, but they really haven't embraced me. So look at his blunt response in verse 26. And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So are these crowds truly, genuinely seeking after Jesus? Or are they merely seeking a miracle worker who can provide with astonishing abundance? If they're merely here to get their bellies full, they came to the wrong guy. Jesus' verdict in verse 27 is very clear. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. It is available. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Now when you read those words, you're reminded instantly of an earlier conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well. The woman thought of water in a very temporal sense. kind of water that can just assuage your thirst for a moment when you're very thirsty. And Jesus responded to that woman, The water that I will give you will become a spring of water just welling up to eternal life. Jesus, friends, is interested in enduring food. Everlasting water. And as the dialogue with the woman of the well develops, it becomes evident that Jesus Himself is the water of eternal life. And as the dialogue develops here through chapter 6, it becomes evident that Jesus Himself is the bread of eternal life. Now in verse 27, locate the word which. It's difficult to say which word, in verse 27, the word which, modifies. When Jesus says, which the Son of Man will give you, does which modify food, or does it modify eternal life? And in the end, it doesn't really matter, because they both point right back to Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life, and as the bread of life, Jesus is the source of eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. That's what Jesus is most concerned with. So friends, does the miracle cause you to embrace the miracle worker? That's what Jesus is after. With the woman of the well, Jesus had to deal decisively with her sin before she was truly ready to embrace the Messiah. So go call your husband and in this case, Jesus will have to deal decisively with the crowd's disbelief before they are ready to embrace Him. In both cases, Jesus expected both the woman and the crowd to look beyond the bread and look beyond the water and discover Him, Him as the source of eternal life. Now let's take a moment and just really develop the application of this. Oftentimes I leave application for the end of the sermon but I think at this point, I just really, really want to get down into the weeds of application. Right? Maybe weeds is the wrong term. I don't know. All right, But I don't think that I have to tell you that there is a tremendous amount of discussion today about how to win people to Christ. This discussion has been going on for many, many decades. It involves books and podcasts and conferences. And in those mediums, there's all kinds of discussions about methods, about entertainment, about music, about resources, about concerts, about social programs, and even subjects like dress or alcohol and how you reach out to people. Can you give offense by even how you're dressed? Well, I think some of that discussion is in fact very, very good. Because we do in fact want to reach out and bring people to Christ. We want to figure out how we live in the world, pointing people to Christ, which is good, without succumbing to the world. Those are difficult questions. How do we become all things to all men while at the same time knowing how to separate from ungodliness? That's another question that we're asking constantly. And I don't suppose there's a Bible-believing church anywhere, including us here at UBC, that isn't painfully aware of our own inadequacies in reaching out to people for Christ. I mean, we all think we've got to do a better job of this, right? Many of you in the church have expressed genuine interest in finding ways to reach out to the Clemson community and to reach out to your neighbors. I find that thrilling. But having said all that, we really need to remember that all of our outreach ultimately comes down to drawing people to a verdict about Jesus. That's really where you have to drive people. Are you going to come to a verdict about Jesus? Now, I have no problem with providing meals for internationals or for soccer fest. None at all. I have no problem with inner-city churches hosting soup kitchens for the homeless. These are good, charitable works. I support medical missions. And we have people out of our church that engage in medical missions. I have no trouble contributing to an offering for the turners to help send supplies into the jungle. No problem with that. Friends, Jesus himself did not hesitate to feed the hungry. In fact, Jesus did so with astonishing abundance. However, Jesus is really clear in verse 26. Look at the text. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. If people just come for the bread or medicine or music, but never embrace Christ, they will perish. And Jesus understood that. Friends, the church does not exist to fill bellies and leave people with empty hearts. If you've observed Pastor Joseph through the years, you know that our international ministry does not exist to feed people, although they have fed a lot, a lot of people through the years. Rather, that food brings people to the table where, in the words of Jesus, they are introduced to the food that endures to eternal life. Friends, I am very supportive of good music in the church. May God forbid that anyone should come to UBC or to any church for the quality of the music. A Christian music concert should never become an end in itself. I think all too often these concerts are ends in themselves. Just everybody get together, enjoy the music, and go back to life. Again, I have no problem with medical missions work. In fact, my wife and I have given voluntarily to medical missions work around the globe. No problem with that. I support it. But medicine is not an end in itself any more than Jesus' miracles of healing were an end in themselves, right? Jesus didn't stop with the healing. He went beyond that to the Gospel. Jesus' miracles pointed people to their need for ultimate healing through the death and resurrection of the Messiah. Very curiously, if you observe Jesus' ministry the closer and closer that he gets to Jerusalem, along his final journey, those miracles begin to fade. The crowds must realize that their greatest need is not mere physical healing or the satisfaction of temporary hunger. They must be born again. So friends, go ahead and just give a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus Christ. Because Matthew 25 tells us that Jesus literally observes it. The smallest little cup of water given in His name, He observes it. Clothe the poor, clothe the destitute, Jesus observes it. Matthew 25, help your neighbor in time of need, Jesus observes it. But none of these deeds are of mercy or an end in themselves. They are only means of introducing people to Jesus of Nazareth. A couple of years ago, I was sitting outside a Starbucks having coffee with an older pastor friend. And a destitute, hungry man walked up to us begging for money. And those situations, as you know, are always a little bit awkward. Especially when you sense the individual might be an alcoholic and you certainly don't want to fund an addiction. And I was very glad when the older pastor just piped up immediately and responded to this man. And he just reached into his wallet and he pulled out some money and he handed it to the man. But very wisely he said this. He says, I'm going to give you some money under two conditions. Number one, I want to watch you go into that store right across the street there and purchase some food, okay? Not alcohol. I want you to purchase some food. And then he said, I want you to understand that I am giving you this money in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This, this money is coming to you, not from me, it's coming to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And he cares very much about your hungry and human condition, but he also cares very much about your soul, and he shared the gospel briefly with him. Well, friends, that, that is precisely the application of the passage. The man needs food, but more importantly, he needs the food that endures to eternal life. That's what he truly needs. Friends, Jesus could draw, could draw a large crowd with his miracles. In fact, a far larger crowd than we could ever hope to draw. And Jesus is interested in genuinely helping people. But Jesus understands their greatest need is not in their belly. It's in their hearts. A heart that must be changed. And Jesus understood, if I can quote Mark Dever, what you win people with cannot be what you win them to. What you win people with cannot be what you you win them to. Leading someone to Christ over a meal is different than drawing crowds to the table. Winning someone through music is different than drawing them to a concert. Winning someone to Christ through medical missions is different than keeping people continually bandaged up, bandaged up, and loaded down with medication. And you'll just notice for the ministry of Jesus that he was never afraid to turn someone away. That's really crucial. Do you know when to let people walk away? Or in the end, is it all about numbers? Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 with loaves of bread. And then he taught that he was the true, true bread which came down out of heaven. And when the people asked for another miracle, Jesus refused. Jesus understood they came only to have their bellies full, but they were not about to embrace his teaching. And glance ahead now at verse 66. Here's the outcome. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Well, would you say Jesus is a failure? And the crowds are shrinking? He refuses to do another miracle and the crowds begin to walk away. And I wonder have you ever incorporated verse 66 into your philosophy of outreach? I mean, do you know when to let people just walk away? The Lord may call you into church planning. But many a church planner has actually failed because he never met his preconceived quota. We're going to have a church of 205 years, and after five years they've got 50, and he gives up. Jesus was more than willing to heal all those who came to him, but Jesus also determined to draw people to a verdict about himself. And you never sense that Jesus is after numbers or the size of a congregation. He's not interested in keeping on a concert or food kitchen running indefinitely. It's not what he's after. He is concerned that people come to a correct verdict about his identity. And that really has to be the center of all of our evangelistic endeavors. Now, with all that application in place, let's just re-engage our text with verse 27. Jesus tells the Jews, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now, the word work is really crucial. Many a Jew, like the rich young ruler, believed that he could actually work, he could labor to save his soul through a law keeping. But that, my friends, is the wrong approach. Jesus actually is setting up the crowd for a paradigm shift. When you read verse twenty seven, you might be asking this question how how might we work for the food that endures for eternal life? I mean look at the text. Doesn't it imply that we're supposed to work for eternal life? Do you not work for the food that perishes, but but what? But work, that's the implication, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. How might they work for the food that endures to eternal life? That is the obvious question of verse 27. And notice how the crowd responds to that question in verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do? I mean, their question, or Jesus' question, provoked them with a the question, what should we do? How should we work? And Jesus, at this point, has them just right where he wants them. A good teacher knows how to provoke questions in his students to create a kind of cognitive dissonance in a person's mind that he or she must resolve really heightens their learning experience. If you come into the classroom with a question that you need to get solved, you're going to get a lot more out of that class than the student who just shows up because he's required to be there. Socrates understood this truth, and he skillfully maneuvered his students by asking the right questions. So, what kind of works does God require of us? That is the assumption behind verse 27. So what do we do to inherit eternal life? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him Him whom He has sent. And with that statement, Jesus has turned their whole world upside down and inside out. It really would be difficult to overestimate how revolutionary that simple statement is. How much that would have affected His Jewish hearers. Here is what God requires of you. What kind of work? Belief. Well, wait a minute. What about keeping all those laws? Didn't God demand through thunder and lightning on Sinai that we just follow the laws, that we keep all those good works? Don't we have to labor for eternal life? And Jesus comes along and says, here's the work. Believe, 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 believe in Him whom He has sent. What Jesus has done here is He has come along And he offers to the Jews a whole new paradigm. This is a Copernican revolution. This changes the whole way that you look at the universe. For the Jew, the individual lawkeeper was the center of his own solar system. He obsessed over meticulously keeping all the little rules. His religion was internalized, self-focused, and in many cases self-congratulatory. It's all about me and all my rule keeping. Look at all my works. And Jesus comes along and he puts the sun at the center of the solar system. Here is the proper work. Actually, just believe. Believe. That's what God really wants from you. He wants your belief. Now, carefully observe in verse 29 that Jesus does not emphasize merely belief, but also the object of belief. The object of belief, not ourselves. Not our own abilities. God requires belief, yes, but specifically belief in the One whom He has sent. God requires belief in Jesus. Just reorient your whole solar system around the sun. That's what Jesus is saying. Take your focus off yourself and your good works and all your law keeping, your vain efforts to achieve righteousness and believe on the One whom God has sent. Now, friends, do the Jews understand yet what Jesus is actually telling them? Do they get it? Are they ready to simply embrace Jesus? And the answer, sadly, is no. Verse 30. So they said to him, "Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Well, friends, read those words carefully and ask yourself this question. How long has it been since they last saw a sign? 24 hours. 24 hours. The previous day he fed the 5,000 with 12 baskets remaining. And already, they're demanding another sign. This is, again, where we've got to be very, very careful about how we draw people to Christ. If you're drawing people to a table, you're going to have to keep that table full, constantly. If you draw people to a concert, you're going to have to keep on planning more concerts. Our job, friends, is to draw people to Jesus. There's probably a challenge here also in the Jews' statement, concerning the man in the wilderness, That further just indicates that they totally misunderstand Him. The manna, as we know from the book of Exodus, spoiled with time. It perished. It was only so good. And Jesus, back in verse 27, said, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now when the Jews ask, in verse 30... What sign do you do? Put the emphasis on the you. What sign do you do? There seems to be a latent assumption that Jesus has to outdo Moses. I mean, we had that perishing food for Moses. That was nice. But what sign do you do? As if he's got to outdo Moses. They seem to imply our Father's got the manna. Alright, so what are you going to do for us? If Jesus is superior to Moses, well, then you prove it to us. Multiplying the loaves and fish, well, that was a nice start. But verse 30, what work do you perform? As if to say, okay, well, give us something better than Moses gave us. Some rabbis did indeed claim that the Messiah, the new Moses, would also call down manna from heaven like the first Moses, and then in some way he might outdo the first Moses. And there was some evidence that this belief of a new Moses coming and calling down manna from heaven was circulating widely in the first century. And further, if you recall from verse 14, the Jews were looking for the prophet who was the coming of the world, the new Moses. And of course, it was Moses who predicted another prophet like himself would come. All that to say, there does seem to be a challenge in the Jews' question concerning the sign. They're not embracing Jesus but they're actually challenging his prophetic credentials. Yeah, what sign do you do? Again, there's an assumption that he has to outdo Moses, a kind of one upsmanship Give us a greater miracle than the people of Moses' day got, and we might just believe, "Ah, but the verdict is still out on you, Jesus. That is how I think the passage progresses. But Jesus, of course, will not acquiesce to their demands. Jesus actually is not interested in pitting himself against Moses as a kind of rival redeemer. He knows he's far superior to Moses. In fact, Jesus is not some sort of flashy Messiah who comes along and just performs miracles to get a large following. That's not what he's after. Jesus, of course, knew that even while the Hebrews ate man in the wilderness, they built a golden calf and they grumbled and complained and they refused to enter the promised land. So just outdoing Moses isn't going to change hearts. He understands the Jews merely want signs, but they are not willing yet to believe on him whom God has sent. And so he refuses to perform another miracle as a crash display of his superiority over Moses. That's not where his interests lie. In fact, Jesus understood that the Jews just lavished far too much attention on Moses. And in fact, gave too little attention to Moses' father in heaven. And that explains his response in verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say it to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. but My father gives you the true bread from heaven. Moses has been elevated out of all due proportion the minds of the Jews. Moses, friends, is a sinner like the rest of us. Moses was just like one of those Hebrews and the horde there that came out of Egypt who disobeyed God and also never entered the promised land. Jesus claims in verse 32 that you are fixated on the miracle and you are failing to embrace the true source of the miracle. Look beyond the miracle. You want the manna But you have never acknowledged the source of the manna. It wasn't Moses. You have never acknowledged the source. God the Father in heaven laid out that banquet for you on the desert floor. And there's even more in Jesus' statement. Notice notice a shift in tense in verse 32. It was not Moses who gave past tense. But the final clause reads this way, but my Father gives. That is a deliberate shift in tense. Jesus shifts from the wilderness wanderings to the present hour. He essentially says, you wrongly assume that Moses' past hands gave you that food in the wilderness when it was really my Father. And even now, you fail to recognize that my Father is giving you something at the present hour. The true bread has been given to you by the Father. You just can't see Him. If you want something better than man in the wilderness, if you want to insist on your little one-upsmanship and pit me against Moses, well then guess what? The better man is already here. And you're just too blind to see it. And that's what he means in verse 33. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven... And gives life to the world. That's the greater miracle. It's already here, and you just can't see it. Now, verse 33 is really, truly a magnificent statement that accomplishes two things. First of all, what it does is it transitions our thinking from the notion that Jesus sends bread to the truth that Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the bread out of heaven. Now, the Jews don't understand what Jesus means. But this transition just sets us up to understand the rest of the dialogue. If you don't understand that transition, the rest of the dialogue won't make sense. Jesus is the bread of heaven. Jesus makes it very clear in the ensuing verses that he is not merely going to send bread. He is the bread of life. And secondly, the statement transitions the Jews' narrow focus on themselves to the broader world. The emphasis at the end of the verse is not, I mean, is rather, on the life of the world. God is not interested in merely feeding a band of recently liberated slaves out of Egypt. God actually has a global plan. God is sending bread to the world at large. Look at the text the bread of God. It's he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's what's going on in these verses. Now, John does not tell us of the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 that Matthew and Mark do. And when Jesus performed that second miracle of the feeding of thousands of people, he was in a Gentile region. He was in the Decapolis. And that second miracle of feeding thousands tells us that, yes, indeed, God has moved beyond just the Jews. God, indeed, is interested in feeding the world. That He is, in fact, the true bread which came down and gives life to the world. So, friend, the decisive issue at stake here in the Gospel is not whether a person is a Jew or a proselyte The decisive issue is whether a man or a woman is willing to embrace the one whom God has sent out of heaven. That's the issue. Verse 29 again says, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. God does not require that you have a Jewish lineage or keep all the laws delivered at Sinai. It's not what He requires of any one of us. God requires that you believe And the one whom he has sent. Verse 29 and verse 33. The one whom he has sent down from heaven to give life to the world. And again, do the Jews understand? Well, verse 34 sort of gestures in that direction. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And that, in fact, is the correct response. Give us this bread always. But Jesus knows that genuine misunderstanding still lurks behind that response. They're still thinking of temporal bread. And their response echoes the initial response of the woman at the well when she said, in her response, the living water, sir, give me this water. Give me this water so that I won't be thirsty or I have to come here to draw. That's a good initial response, but we have to meet people beyond those initial responses because they betray a temporal, mundane understanding of the gospel. Give us water now. Give us food now. But Jesus is interested in the deeper issues of the heart. So can I just say in conclusion, perhaps you've come in today and you're looking for food or water, maybe not in a literal sense, but you're looking for New friends, new relationships. So you have a need of some sort, or you just feel like you need to get in a church. That's fine. Our job is really to point you beyond your present need to Christ. Are you willing to embrace Jesus Himself as the bread and as the water of life? Are Are you looking for present satisfaction? or genuine eternal life? That's that's the question you have to address. Shall we pray together? Father, for anyone here today who may be looking for present satisfaction of needs, we pray, Lord, that in some small way we might be able to meet those needs. But more importantly, we ask that that person would find a solution to his or her sin problem. I would indeed embrace Christ as the one who has come down to tabernacle among us and to resurrect us unto eternal life. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.